Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers and philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. Joshua here. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Stephen Cope, the author of The Great Work of Your Life. Stephen is a best-selling author and scholar who specializes in the relationship between Eastern contemplative traditions and Western depth psychology. This was a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I think you will as well. Please welcome the wise and gracious Stephen Cope. Stephen Cope, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joshua. It's great to be here. It's good to see you. You too. You're the author of multiple books, and I'm really excited to discuss your book, The Great Work of Your Life, A Guide for the Journey to Your True Calling. And Stephen, I have to say you did a phenomenal job with this book. I'm, I'm a huge fan. The, the stories and lives that you use throughout really make the book come come to life. Thank you. Before we get into it, I was wondering if you could share a bit of background about yourself. Sure. I am obviously a writer. For thirty, the last 32 years, I've been the senior scholar in residence at Kripala Center for Yoga and Health, which is, of course, the largest yoga center in America, probably the world. You know, I, I came to that, that job 32 years ago with a degree in, in psychology and had a long-term psychotherapy practice. So when I arrived, I was profoundly interested already in the in the wisdom of the Eastern contemplative traditions. I'd been practicing Buddhism for many years. And I arrived at Kripalu, which is uh, obviously a, a yoga center, and found that the wisdom of the yoga tradition was immense. And I, I had had really very little idea of it before I got to Kripalu. So, for the last 32 years, I've been teaching and writing about and trying to mainstream, really, some of these brilliant ancient texts, uh, the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutra and so forth, that are so immensely practical for us still this to this day, 2,000 years later. And yet, without a real guide, it's impossible to understand them or read them for most of us. So that's kind of been my self-appointed little job. <laughs> I love that. Thank you for sharing. I was initially introduced to your work through a podcast that you were on, The, the Art of Manliness, which I really enjoyed. And, and after that, immediately picked up the book. And I was hoping today we could kind of build on that conversation. And I'd encourage anybody listening to check out that episode. Sure. And to begin the discussion, would you mind kind of providing and an overview of a, of a term that will probably come up throughout our, our conversation is, is dharma. Absolutely, Josh. So, dharma is really the central term in this book. It comes from a Sanskrit word, which is, is one of those very complex Sanskrit words, which means a lot of things at the same time. It means truth, path, law. In the case of the particular scripture that I've written about here, it means sacred duty. It means what we might call true calling or vocation 
sacred duty, the, the root of dharma, the word dharma comes from the root DHR, which means to uphold. And the view in the ancient yoga tradition was that each one of us has a duty to our particular gifts. Each one of us has a calling, and it's our responsibility to meet that calling in this life. In fact, this life is about nothing other than finding our dharma, our calling, our vocation, if you will, and executing it as well as we possibly can. It's a very ancient concept. It goes all the way back to at least 1000 BCE, when one of the great ancient stories of the yoga tradition is, is Indra's net. So Indra was a great god of the Vedic pantheon two, 3,000 years ago now. The tale is that he'd woven a great net over the entire universe, and that at the warp and woof strand, at the vertices of each one of these strands, is a gem, is a jewel, and that jewel is a human soul. And it's that soul's responsibility to hold together the net at that particular point. And so that each of us has a responsibility for the whole. It's my job to hold together the net at my particular corner of the world and to be responsible for that little corner of the world. But that means the whole thing could unravel if I don't do my job. And that's a very important point in this view because the, the idea in this view is that individual fulfillment and the common good go hand in hand. So I fulfill my role and it not only fulfills me personally because there's a strong urge to fulfill who we really are, but it also upholds the whole. So that root, again, DHR means to uphold. So this, this link between individual fulfillment and the common good is very important and something that really fascinates me. The tale itself is a, is a, is a conversation between Krishna, uh, who's, who's a, an avatar of God, and Arjuna, who's a warrior. And Krishna says, this duty and the whole world were created at the same time. So it's a fascinating view. It is in such an important, important topic. I would love to kind of get started around the the big and, and beautiful question that I think you asked to start the book, which is, what do you fear most in life? Why is that such an important question? You know, it's so interesting, Joshua, because we currently have, there's a great deal of emphasis, especially in the contemplative traditions, on the notion of happiness, the idea that we all want to be happy, which of course is true. But these traditions have an equal or even greater interest in the idea of fulfillment. That is, there is some inborn human need to feel a deep sense of purpose and, and a fulfillment of that purpose. And that really what we fear most is not, not necessarily, you know, even illness or death, but on some level, not fully fulfilling who we are, why we were put here and placed here on this earth. And I begin the book there because I think, I think a lot of us feel that, that without this deep sense of meaning and purpose, human beings can actually bear a tremendous amount of difficulty and suffering. 
suffering if if we believe that it has meaning and purpose. And you were in the military, so you know that's an absolutely central view there. Sacred duty and the idea that that this has a meaning way beyond our own individual selves. It's very powerful. Yeah, I, th- I think similar to that thread as well, you you talk about doubt and quote, and I, I'd be curious to know kind of how you would differentiate fear and doubt and, and maybe how that relates to some of the common terms that we talk about today, whether it's like imposter syndrome or kind of that inner critic that we we face. Doubt is a very important term in the Bhagavad Gita, in the in the text that I'm unraveling here. The, in fact, the whole thing can actually be seen as a kind of parable of doubt and faith. At the beginning of the story, which is very short, 18 chapters long, Arjuna, the great warrior, the greatest warrior of the kingdom, confronts what I call a disorienting dilemma. That is to say, a dilemma that's so intense, a moral dilemma that's so complex that it actually begins to destabilize or fragment the self. And the question for Arjuna is, it's on the eve of a great battle, an epic battle, and a battle that is said that will shake the foundations of the world. And the moral dilemma is, should he fight in this battle? Is this his battle to fight? Now, he's a warrior, so it is his sacred duty to fight in a war that is a just war. So, he has a lot of questions, and he's paralyzed by his inability to resolve these questions. And this is called, in this tradition, this is what doubt is. Doubt is when you have one foot on either side of an intersection, when you have a foot planted on either side of a great dilemma, very often a moral dilemma. And if you cannot resolve it, you remain paralyzed. Doubt is called the paralyzing affliction or the immobilizing affliction because, you know, we come to a crossroads and and we ask the question, okay, should I go right or left here? Very, very many, many times we get stuck at that crossroads. Well, I don't know. I can't see far enough down this road or that road. And we actually remain stuck at the crossroads. I I said in the book, we put down our folding chair in the middle of the crossroads and never get up, right? (laughs) And how many people do we know that have actually been paralyzed by doubt their entire lives? So the resolution of doubt is an essential component in this book. It begins with Arjuna, the warrior, literally collapsed on the floor of his chariot. And he says to Krishna, oh, Krishna, I cannot, conflicting sacred duties confound my mind. And then the very last couple of paragraphs, he says, my doubt's been resolved, and now I know what to do. And of course, he moves from doubt to what we call certitude, which is clarity, right? Which is absolutely essential in Dharma. So, you hit on a good one. Doubt, Doubt is, yeah, it's, oh, by the way, it's called the paralyzing affliction, but it's also called the invisible infl- affliction because while there's certain kinds of afflicted states or tormented states, uh, to, to use this tradition's words, that are very obvious, like when we're stuck in hate or when we're stuck in greed, but very often doubt can be, we don't even know we're stuck in it, we're mired in it, and we don't know it. So, the very first 
admonition in these traditions is always name it, name the affliction, name the difficult state that you're stuck in. Oh, I'm caught in doubt. Now what do I do? Now I examine very closely both sides of this dilemma. I was really curious going through the book. There's a a quote that I'm fond of by Amelia Earhart that kind of encourages us to take action and kind of discusses the fears as as paper tigers. Oh, interesting. In your work, is that kind of how you see the fear kind of in hindsight? It's a it's a bit of a paper tiger or yeah. is it not so much? No, it is. You know, for me, Every step on the path of life and every step on the path of Dharma very often brings us to what feels like a cliff edge where we have to take a little leap, a little leap of faith. And I've had in my lifetime maybe five or six moments, crossroads moments that brought me to that place where I thought, I'm going to have to leap off this cliff and I'm terrified, right? In every single case, I discovered after stepping off the cliff that it was more like stepping off a curb than stepping off a cliff. You say paper tiger. The leap was not as terrifying, in fact, as my mind had made it out to be. But that was only because I was, in in each case, for whatever reason, I was very careful about what's called the factor of discernment, discerning whether I needed to take that next step. And the thing is that we're never completely sure how that next step's going to go. So if you're going to live a life of dharma, of purpose, you're going to have to get used to taking some steps that whose outcome you don't know. You know, Martin Buber famously said, every journey has destinations of which the traveler is unaware. And you could look at that as something to make you scared or something to make you excited. I love that. On this same thread of, of fear, you quote Thomas Merton, who I love, what you fear is an indication of what you seek. And kind of Rumi has something similar. What you seek is, is seeking you. For someone listening, you know, what are some signs that might indicate our, our calling or our dharma is maybe seeking us? You know, strangely enough, doubt is very often one of them. So, I've discovered that when doubt enters in, it's very often something new entering the fray and something that we don't know. And it's very often the future knocking, right? We don't know what it is. It's unknown. Robert Frost's great poem, Two Roads Diverged in a Yellow Wood, and I, Sorry I Could Not Travel Both and Be One Traveler. I looked down as far as I could down each road, but I couldn't see where it, where it went. So that that's, that's what I call a crossroads moment. And that in itself is an indication that something new is trying to get in. And that's exciting. Very often, you know, there, there are lots of mistaken understandings of Dharma. So there's an understanding that, you know, I only have one calling in this lifetime. That's not true. You can have multiple callings at the same time. There's something I call the romance of Dharma, the notion that 
you know, you have to leave your job selling insurance and move to Paris to paint. That's Dharma. Dharma has to be big and florid or colorful. Another one is that your life work, that is your vocation or your your job needs to be Dharma. That's not true. I know plenty of people whose whose job is merely a corollary to their real life work. I think I talk in the book about one of my sisters whose whose life work was raising kids and being with their kids, and that was fabulous. That's a Dharma. So there there are lots of mistaken notions about this that that hem us around that we have to be careful of. But to just to get back to your question, what's an indication that your dharma is seeking you? Well, doubt, confusion. When usually when something new is arising, the self is undergoing a profound internal reorganization, right? Something, some nagging intuition that just won't go away. You push it away, right? And yet it keeps coming back. These are all indications that something is afoot. Or also, I I talk, and I'm just writing a new book about Dharma, actually. It's called The Dharma of Difficult Times. And one of the things I talk about there is encountering open doors and closed doors. So many of us have an instinct to want to go through doors that are closed so Dharma's come to an end. So I have a, I had a certain calling until I was 40 and then it changed. It came to an end. But I, because Dar- because our lives have so much momentum, we think that that's just a problem. I have to push through that closed door. And I've come to believe in not pushing through closed doors. Occasionally it's, it's required, right? But the, the option is to look for open doors, and they're usually all over the place. Remember Lord Byron's famous poem, The Prisoner of Chillin, where this guy was locked in a prison for decades, only to discover that the door had been open over, right over here. Look for the open door. That's, that's another sign that, that something's calling you, and a big one for me. I'd, I'd love to follow that discerning your dharma. I love the kind of use of visuals. And you mentioned Robert Frost and that very popular poem. And you kind of talk about throughout throughout the book, you know, Jane Goodall as an example of, of maybe kind of an easier or more direct path to her dharma. In your experience, do you think sometimes it can be kind of a like a road not there Instead of kind of these two options, it's almost like I kind of think of like an old Indiana Jones movie where the path doesn't appear until you kind of mm-hmm. step out <laughs> on okay. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are a number of ways in which Dharma shows up. And there, I've, I've identified three. I call them fruitful hunting grounds for Dharma. The first one is something's lighting you up. So I, I very often have my students just make a, a completely uncensored list of what's lighting them up, all the way from the sublime to the ridiculous, right? What's lighting you up? Well, this TV show or that, that figure I'm reading about or something in my practice of music in this instrument that I'm practicing. But 
it's very fruitful to pay close attention energetically to what's lighting you up. And you can't fool the body. When it's a question of being lit up, it's in the body. It's visceral. What's lighting you up right now? You have to get really honest about this. That's a very fruitful hunting ground, right, for Dharma. The second one is very different. The second one is, is, is duty. What do you feel a duty to right now? What's calling you as a duty? And even as I say the word, you can feel how different that is than lit up. Duties may not light you up, but some duties are imposed from within. That is to say, for me, a duty is anything that if you do not do it, you feel a profound sense of self-betrayal. That's a duty, right? When my mother was dying, she asked me to be the curator of our family papers and photographs and so forth. Duty, right? Not sure I wanted to do it then. Now that I'm much older, I, I see it. Very often people feel like, oh, my kids are just a duty. I'm so tired of this. I, I signed on for an 18-year track of kids. Duty. What is it that if you do not do it, it will leave you feeling a profound sense of self-betrayal, not a good thing. So that's the second one, what's lighting you up, current duties. And the third one, more on the lines of what you uh, referred to earlier, is difficulties. Very often, hidden in the center of a life difficulty is a dharma, right? So all of a sudden, I have cancer. Oof. At first, I look at that as just an obstacle to my life the way I thought it was going to be. But if I dig deeper, I might discover that within the wound of cancer, there's an enormous gift. There's a little gem right in the center of that. And so, all kinds of difficulties. For me, it was a relationship breakup. It blew my world apart, and it, it led me to... Kripalu, that's how I ended up there 32 years ago. I was in the middle of a breakup of a long-term relationship. And at the very center of what I thought was a disaster was actually a huge gift. But it took a long time to understand that. I mean, very often we, life, if you look at it as kind of a tapestry, we only get a little bit of the tapestry at a time. And with perspective and with time, we can see more of the tapestry and, and actually understand that within that difficulty, there was a great gift and a, and a deep dharma. So those are the three, what I call the most fruitful hunting grounds that, that I point people toward. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think that's very, very helpful. Similar to that, you kind of touched on it, but it's that not following your dharma you know, some real consequences that, that come about. And there's a, a quote that you put in the book, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, it will destroy you. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak to the origins and, you know, what, what that means to you. Yeah, that's a stunning quote. It's it's from the, the Gnostic Gospel of St. Thomas. So, it is not one of the canonical Christian gospels, but it's it's a highly revered gospel, especially in the last couple of decades. And St. Thomas was a Gnostic. That, that is closer to 
the kind of Eastern contemplative traditions than what we might say is, is routine mainstream Christianity. But he says, if you become who, who you are meant to be, it will save you. And if you do not, it will destroy you. Well, we get the first part of that. Uh, if I live into my dharma, it will save me. But if I don't live into my dharma, it will destroy me? Really? I don't know. I, I think most of us feel some truth in that. I know people. I know people in my own family, and it's it's so tragic, who have not been willing to go to the mat with their own dharma. And there was one individual in particular who I remember in his 50s had or 40s had some brilliant ideas about how to move forward with his life. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And I'm sure that it gave rise to what these traditions call remorse. So remorse means that you feel badly about the way your life has has worked out. And very often you can you can trace back and find crossroads where you put that folding chair down and you didn't get up and you could actually have gone on. So there there is something, you know, in the in the Jungian world, the great author Carol Pearson talks about our responsibility to our gifts. This is not something we hear much about, but the idea is here that each one of us has a unique set of gifts that nobody else has. And that we have a responsibility to those gifts, right? Very often people will jettison that responsibility in favor of, oh, I don't know, money or prestige. And of course, those are all highly regarded in our culture. You want to be a poet? You think it's your gift to be a poet? You know it's your gift? Your family's not going to love that. That's not a job. Well, it's not. It, it is, but it's a dharma, right? So if you do not bring forth what is within you, it will destroy you. And that's a darker side of this, but you know, it's worth it's worth contemplating. I was hoping for the rest of the time that maybe we could go through each of the four pillars and talk about some of the lives that you really used, which I, I said in the beginning, I really think kind of brings the the book to life. Um that first pillar, look to your Dharma. Um, one of the figures that you you talk about there is Jane Goodall, um, kind of trusting the gift. Could you speak a bit about her? Yeah, I mean, I just adore Jane Goodall, who doesn't. But if you dig deeply into Jane Goodall, you'll discover that even as a young child, she had this profound gift for relating to animals. And I, I tell the the famous story about how she, I think I think she was four, she disappeared for a whole day. She lived on a on a farm in, in rural England and they couldn't find her and everybody's hair was on fire. Cause where's Jane? Well, where was Jane? She had spent the entire day in the hen house because she wanted to see the exact moment when the egg came out of the hen. Okay. There is a gift, right? How many kids have that kind of patience? And what did she end up doing following at great risk to herself? going to Africa and studying with Lewis Leakey and and finally working with the in the jungles with the chimps she again at great risk she built on that gift now the the truth and and that's what i mean by trust in the gift so the gift is very precious and 
very often we know more about it as kids than we do as we grow older. We know more about the gift. Like I had a gift for music very early. It's a gift. It's freely given. I, I could sit down to the piano and play by ear. And so, of course, it terrified my parents. No, these kids can't become a pianist. They wanted me to be an international lawyer. You know, I grew up in one of these big wasp families, and we had very clear ideas about who people should be. That gets really gets in the way of honoring the gift, right? So Jane Goodall took the gift and built on it. And the thing about the gift is there's tremendous energy in the gift, right? There's energy. I, I tell the story in the book about my brother, my older brother, who had a gift for machinery. And the dude could, he went down, he was at 13, he was building cars in the garage. I had no idea what the innards of a car looked like, nor cared, right? Randy had a gift. So, in that gift, there's tremendous power. Now, even as a 72-year-old, my brother is a gearhead. He loves cars. He has a BMW motorcycle and a BMW car, and he's rebuilding Corvettes, and there's energy in the gift. Pay attention to the energy. So, And Jane Goodall was a beautiful example of that. And I, also, I think I used Robert Frost and Walt Whitman in that section. These are people with amazing gifts who trusted them. Now, Robert Frost is a good example because nobody in his family wanted him to be a poet, right? And he was widely considered a kook and a failure. He bought this farm in North in New Hampshire precisely in order to write poetry, not to farm. So everybody thought that this guy was the biggest slacker in the world until he was about 40 when he became very well known. And um, it was clear that he was farming poetry on that farm, okay, not chickens or corn. But I track in the story of, of Frost all of the different cliffs. We talked about cliffs earlier that he had to jump off to get there, and they were considerable. I went to Amherst College where Robert Frost was a local hero, and the library is named for him. And so I have a lot of Frost lore uh, that I put in that book. <laughs> nice. It reminds me of of a theme that runs through not every character that you use, but but many kind of uh, where Krishna states, it's better to fail at your own dharma than to succeed at someone else's. And not that these dharmas fails, but sometimes the success doesn't come, you know, until after they've passed right. and are passed yeah. and are gone. It reminds me of a response from Mother Teresa around a kind of similar question about success. And she says, we're not called to be successful, but to be faithful. Oh, that's beautiful. Here's the thing. We don't know what success is. I talked earlier about the, the tapestry. We don't have enough perspective to understand what success is. The thing is, when you're onto your dharma and doing it fully, no matter how it looks externally, there is a mystic power in that dharma. There is some kind of unseen power, and we don't know what it's contributing to the world necessarily. And so, I can. There, there are so many stories of people who just 
trusted in their gift, if you bring forth what is within you, trusted in the gift. And it was only known way later after their death what they had actually contributed to the world. Emily Dickinson is one of my favorites. She also lived in Amherst. But she trusted in her gift of poetry for no outward reason. She never had more than one poem published under her own name. And there she was working away at her dharma in her little house in Amherst. And she became literally the greatest poet of American culture without the slightest bit of recognition or success whatsoever. She was also considered a kook, by the way. And so was Thoreau, for that matter. Thoreau was considered a total ne'er-do-well in Concord. And there he was, out in the woods, writing the great masterpiece of American philosophy, Walden, and on civil disobedience. And he was widely considered a loser in, in Concord, you know. Uh, I, anyway, yeah, I was, I was really surprised to hear how few copies were sold, you know, during his lifetime of, of some of those uh, Im- important works. They didn't even sell out the the first printing for a long time. The second pillar is or do it full out, and you you highlight the really remarkable commitment of of Susan B. Anthony. A figure that I was not as as familiar with as uh, as we should be, and I was wondering if you could kind of speak a bit to her her dharma. Listen, I love Susan B. Anthony, and I didn't know that much about her either when I started. This principle, by the way, so principle one is discern your dharma, find your path, find it, and then do it full out. Bring everything you've got to it. Let. Don't leave anything on the table, okay? Bring it all. This is called the doctrine of unified action in the Bhagavad Gita. And the notion is that when we join all of our energies in pursuit of our dharma, it becomes like the convergence of a number of streams. Let's say you take a hose and it has a number of tributaries. You cut those off, and every time you cut them off, it's a little death. It's, it, that The root of decide is to die, right? So, you cut those off, but you make the central stream even more powerful. So, Susan B. Anthony grew up in a world where women were literally prisoners of men. They, they couldn't inherit. They couldn't own property. It was a nightmare for women. And she got it right away. She was a Quaker, luckily, and she decided that she wanted to be a teacher because that was the only role for women outside the home. So she went and became a teacher, but very quickly she discovered that she had a bigger calling to what you might we would call today social justice and in this case to the empowerment and freeing of women. She started out in the temperance movement because women were so oppressed by alcoholism at home, right? But she finally realized that the real tip of the spear was women's suffrage, that until women had the vote in this country, and that didn't come about until 1920, until they had the vote, they really weren't going to have any power. And so this fabulous woman dedicated her life to that proposition. And in doing so, she had to She had to hone all of these skills that she didn't necessarily have at the start. 
So she had to become a great speaker, right? And she got Elizabeth Cady Stanton, her buddy there, to write speeches and to teach her how to speak. She had to speak in front of big halls full of, of hostile men. And she was a woman who loved to dress colorfully, but she had to dress in black because she didn't want to use that as an excuse for them to discount her. So this was a story. Her, her story is a story of someone who got onto their dharma fairly early in life and then just began to bring everything she had and all of her skills honed in the direction of that dharma until she became what I call a, a guided missile of dharma, right? It was the energy and the force of her character that pulled together the women's movement. And she said, I won't get like Martin Luther King did. I won't get there with you, but we will get the vote. And she and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and many, many other women. I mean, the story of women's suffrage is one everybody in America should know because it took decades and decades of sacrifice and she was one of the engines of that whole thing. So it's a it's a wonderful story. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, remarkable. You, you mentioned in in the book, I believe, something around she was later in years in her eighties, kind of going to a, a a conference and just the the crowd just roaring and being surprised of what what is this, and then kind of uh, lays it on the cause. It's not for her, it's for the cause. She's there with her niece, Jane. And it's one of the great women's organizations started having national conferences in the late 19th century. And she was the grand old dame, but she walked into the hall and it just erupted, as you've said. And she said to Jane, what's that for? And Jane said, it's for you, auntie. And she said, no, it's not for me. It's for the cause. This is a characteristic of dharma okay dharma is devoted to something bigger than we are and the bigger that we allow it to the bigger that we uh, allow it to get the more impact it has on the world so she'd allowed it to get pretty big and it definitely connects to the to the third pillar of of let go of the fruits as krishna states you have the right to the work but never to the fruit. Yeah. Love this pillar. I do too. And and so in so many ways, Joshua, this is the hardest one for people to get because we're so used to the idea that we need to have this external success and external rewards. And Krishna says very pointedly, no, let go of that. It's not your it's none of your business. It's better to fail at your own dharma than to succeed at the dharma of another. In other words, your calling, your gifts have this mystic power that I'm talking about. I, in the summer, I don't know if I put this in the book, but in the summer, I teach a crop of brilliant young musicians from all over the, the world, really. And I teach them the parable of Krishna and Arjuna. And this one they get stuck on. Well, I have to. I have to devote myself to perfection and to success because I've been studying the flute since I was two and I want to be in the top orchestra. And what they don't understand is the way in which grasping and craving and clinging and holding on to our idea of the outcome actually interferes with our capacity to be present for the moment. And mastery only happens in the moment 
right? So the contemplative traditions came up with a different view, which was it's not about grasping for success. It's about aspiration. Aspiration exists in a different part of the mind. You might think about aspiration as something that a, a craftsman does who works, a, and I talk about deliberate practice, I think, in this section, who, who works away very deliberately with the aspiration to bring forth what is within me, right? I talk about Camille Corot, the great French landscape painter, who was a craftsman who worked deliberately to get better and better without grasping or clinging to the outcome. Another example I like that's very vivid is, is you're not as old as I am, but Michelle Kwan, great figure skater. And back at the, the Olympics, and I've forgotten what year it was, when she was defending her gold medal in Olympic figure skating. And I love that whole idea of defending your, your title, right? Because now you've got your hands grasped around your golden statuette. I'm defending this. Okay, that's grasping the outcome. So what happens? Along comes this young whippersnapper, Sarah Brady, who skates in and she says, I don't have anything to defend here. I'm just going to go out and I'm going to go have a great time in this skate, right? So who? So naturally, Sarah Brady won. She went out. She had a great time. There was no clinging or grasping, which actually shuts down the mind. It shuts down the wider perspective of the mind. It shuts down something we call fluid intelligence, the capacity to be open in the moment, which is where all mastery kind of lives. So grasping to outcome actually inhibits outcome. And that's a paradox. But uh, it's one of the great geniuses of the Bhagavad Gita. And there are very few other places that you find it written about so explicitly. I love that. One of the figures that you you write about here is, is Beethoven, you know, who kind of dealt with some suffering and, and hardships throughout his life. I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate a bit on his his example. Well, Beethoven, you know, he knew he had a profound genius. Although we have to say at the outset, when it's very tricky to talk about genius, because we know now that most real success, most real bringing forth what is within you, does not have to do necessarily with innate genius, but rather with hard work and what I call deliberate practice. Deliberate practice, we're back to the craftsman view of, of Camille Corot. Well, Beethoven definitely had magnificent talents, but he also, as we know, developed profound limitations. And the big crossroads moment in Beethoven's life, of course, was when it became clear that he was going to be deaf, that he was getting deaf and deafer and deafer. And he was a young man comparatively, as we would say today. And he went away to the countryside. He loved the countryside. He composed beautifully in the countryside and considered suicide. What is my life worth now if I cannot be the great Beethoven, if I cannot be you know, the great personality of the musical age. And he pondered it seriously. And he came to understand something critical about 
about Dharma, which is, again, it's, it's mystic power. And at that point, he, he wrote something called the Heiligestadt Testament, where he said, I'm devoting the rest of my life to my gift, despite what comes, in spite of the, the difficulties of deafness. And I hereby declare that I believe in music. I believe in the spirit of music. And it's not about success. It's not about outward and visible success, but it's about my bringing forth what is within me. And of course, at that point, he allowed himself to free his powers and he became even more powerful in his compositions. And I talk in the book about his later compositions where he was no longer writing for an audience that even understood his music. He, he had gone so far into the mystic realm of music. We've caught up now, but it took a couple hundred years, right? This is yesterday was his 250th birthday. He was writing his late string quartets. Nobody understood them. It wasn't for the masses. There's a, there's a brilliant book called Solitude. Here's somebody else for you to interview, Anthony Storrs. I'm not even sure he's still alive, but he wrote a book called Solitude. And he talks about what he calls the third phase of artistic mastery in which we're no longer painting for or writing for or composing for the audience out there, but rather because of our call to go deeper and deeper into our field and our mastery. Robert Frost got there. His last book of poetry was called A Further Range, Further Range. And so that's where Beethoven ended up and made amazing contributions to music. I was just yesterday listening to the Ninth Symphony, which was an appropriate thing to, to play on his birthday. And people didn't understand it then. That had never been done. That kind of chorus, choral music and symphony and 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 here's the thing, it's an imperfect work. The ninth, you might say that the third and the fifth were perfect. The ninth isn't. He was so far out there. Again, this is called fluid intelligence, which is the, the part of the brain, the, the prefrontal cortex, that puts stuff together in brand new ways and writes it upside down and inside out. And that's the kind of guy Beethoven was at the end. And that's where Dharma takes you. And you can see it. Storrs talks beautifully about so many of the great artists, Renoir and Monet, who who got there. And I talk in my book about Corot, who whose paintings also weren't well understood. And, and in truth, you can't take a picture of a Corot painting and grasp it. You have to see it. It's It's living. That's that's where mastery brought him. And I'm so fascinated by that development in the human mind and, and life. Yeah, I love that. And the the final pillar, turn it over to God. I love the example that you use uh, of Harriet Tubman. This pillar kind of reminded me of a St. Ignatius quote of act as if everything depended on you trust as if everything depended on God really kind of reminded me of, of her, her example. And I, could you speak to that a bit? Well, it's funny you bring up Ignatius because I've written about him in my new book, which 
which also takes 11 great, great lives. Yeah, Harriet Tubman, oh my God, you have to get into the life of this woman who was, of course, uh, a self-emancipated slave. She knew that her family was slowly being decimated by on the slave block and was being sold downriver. And she knew she was coming up. Her ticket was coming up. And she, now we say self-emancipated, which I love. She left the plantation. She found her own way through following the drinking gourd, right? The North Star. She found her own way to Philadelphia. And Philadelphia in those days, and my family were Quakers in Philadelphia, and it was a safe haven for self-emancipated slaves like Harriet. And she found a whole new world there where she could be free. And she savored it. And she had this persistent call that was from, she believed, from God, who said, Harriet, I want you to go back and start freeing other slaves. That is, I want you to go back into Maryland or even into the deep South. You know how to do this and free other slaves. And she said, no. And this is the response of every prophet in the Old Testament. When they're called to be a prophet, when Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, it's like, forget, are you kidding? A prophet is only without honor in his own country. No way. <laughs> There's a great story of, I've forgot, forgotten the name of, of the guy who was swallowed by the whale. Anyway, Jonah, that's right, said Jonah. <laughs> Jonah tries to get away because he's just been named a prophet, and the whale swallows him and brings him back. So Herod said no a number of times until finally this call and you know, this is why we talk about the call. There is a call. It's very subtle. The call was so insistent, and she finally said, God, I'll do it, but I cannot do it on my own. You have to do it. I will surrender my body and my mind to you, but there's no way I can do this on my own. And Harriet's whole family apparently had this, what they called a sixth sense like a, a heightened intuition. Harriet had that. So she went back into the, the mid-Atlantic states and then further south, and she would come back with 10 or 15 or even up to 25 emancipated slaves. And they began to trust that she had this connection with God or with her intuition. But if Harriet said, stop and hide, you stopped and hid right? Um, and there are many, many fascinating stories of close calls with Harriet. But she would then take them, she would take her crew all the way to Canada. She didn't stop in Philadelphia. They took the Underground Railroad all the way to Canada. And on the bridge connecting Canada and the United States, she would sit them down and they would have a worship service because she said, this was not my doing. This this is not something I, as an individual human being, could have done. This is, we have to give greater glory to God, which, by the way, was Ignatius' motto. It was, oh, I can't think of the Latin, but it's basically, for the greater glory of God, al gloriam maiorum dei, dei um, for the greater glory of God. And uh, the, the, the story of Harriet Tubman is just, it's fantastic. And you know what? 
she continued to serve until she died. She she bought a house. She filled the house with uh, other African Americans, with people who were poor and homeless, and I believe that still exists up in near Seneca Falls, the the Harriet Tubman house. But the the whole point there is, you know, and some people have written me to say, I don't believe in God, so how do I handle step number four? Well, easy, just devote your life to something bigger than yourself, to something that matters to the world. I have friends who at Kripalu have devoted themselves to Kripalu. It's It's an institution that makes a difference in the world. So turn it over to something bigger than yourself. You know, Krishna said, turn it over to me. Krishna was an avatar of God. And he said, the the power comes from me. The power comes from the stream of love to God, from God to the individual. Um, And there are a number of ways that you can work with that to make it so for yourself. Yeah, I love that. And I'm so grateful for your time today. I want to respect it. I've, I've got just a few more questions, if we could, to to wrap up. If, if there was somebody listening, maybe a parent with kids kind of embarking out on the, on the world or, or somebody that really doesn't have any sort of kind of idea of what their calling might be, any kind of ideas around a first step or particular practices to kind of get there? Yeah. One of the interesting things about Dharma, Joshua, that I've discovered is it's not uncommon that our best friends know what our dharma is before we do. And so, I wrote another book recently called Soul Friends, which talks about the way in which we must, in order to be full practitioners of dharma, we have to create a around ourselves a surround of relationship that mirrors us back. Because there are parts of ourselves that we're unconscious to, that we cannot see. So, I, I like to say, you know, there's parts of your body that you'll never see in your whole life. You'll never see the small of your back directly with your own eyes, only through a mirror. Likewise, there are parts of our psyche, parts of our soul that we only see through reflection of people who care about us and know us and aren't necessarily hindered by our particular baggage about who we are or who we should be. So, a very important thing here is to is to develop close and honest friendships and relationships wherein you can be reflected back to yourself. That's essential because we can't do it all ourselves by by any means. The self, the dharmic self, is actually a co-creation. And again, I, I wrote a, another whole book about the way in which also using great lives. Each one of those great lives, and I used Eleanor Roosevelt and Freud and Darwin and Queen Victoria. Each one of those people came into his or her own dharma as a result of a co-creation with someone else. So Queen Victoria with Prince Albert and and Eleanor Roosevelt with her great teacher, her great teacher, the one real love of her life early on, and Freud with his partner, his his best friend psychoanalyst, who basically informally psychoanalyzed him. So that's my first response, Josh. Yeah. 
I just started listening to the audible version of the of the book Deep Human Connection. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad that you narrated that and I'd encourage anybody listening <laughs> to pick that pick that up and Thank you. and that kind of the final question that I have is, is kind of around that and I think a similar question that we've I've been trying to wrap up with in in a number mm -hmm. of interviews of how this kind of finding our dharma relates to love and connection and and kind of bringing us together another kind of quote that it reminded me of from from Merton love is our true destiny we do not find the meaning of life by ourselves alone we find it with one another mm. how do you how does it connect well it's it connects from the very beginning from the notion that i talked about at the beginning of the interview of individual fulfillment and the common good so what do we mean by the common good the common good begins with all of those around us with whom we're deeply connected so when we talk about love it's it's a tricky word in our culture because we tend to think about romantic love but in the eastern contemplative traditions they don't think about love that way at all love is rather a the word in in Sanskrit and in Pali is is metta or maitri, which means friendliness toward all beings. It friendliness toward all beings. That is the the notion that we are all alike in the most fundamental way. Human beings are alike inside, right? And that's why we can connect with one another because we we know one another. So this idea of friendliness toward all beings is a big reframe for Westerners. And it's something I love about the, the Eastern contemplative traditions. They talk about the, the various components of love, which are something called metta, friendliness, compassion, something called sympathetic joy, that is feeling joy in another person's joy. And also, Equanimity. Equanimity is said to be the wisdom portion of these four characteristics, and so that we don't go out of balance, right? And of course, that brings a whole thing we could do another hour on, which is which is grasping. So very often, grasping and craving and clinging comes into what we think of as love, and it turns out to be nothing more than holding on and grasping. And that doesn't leave a wide enough berth for friendliness for to toward all beings. I love that. And what a beautiful way to wrap up the the conversation that flew by. This has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? They can go to my website, Joshua. It's www.stephencope.com. They can find me on www.cropalu.org. That's K-R-I. P-A-L-U. And they can find my programming there, mostly at Kripalu. I That's where I teach most of the time these days. And of course, we're in the middle of the pandemic, but hopefully that will be over at some point and we'll be back. <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Cope, I appreciate your time today. It has truly been a pleasure. Thank you, Joshua. Pleasure to, to get to know you. Let's stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. 
I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. It's a small thing that has a big impact. Until next time, be wise and be well.